0: Content warning. This show is meant for a mature audience. This episode specifically features discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion
1: is advised.
0: Hi there, and welcome to Working Out the Kinks, the show where we take a feminist, lgbtqia inclusive, kink-positive look at sex and sexuality. I'm your host, Jesse Hitch. Today we'll be talking with Tara Mishra. Tara has a Master's of Science in Community Health Education, about 21 years of experience in sexual health, HIV testing, sex worker outreach, abortion counseling, healthy relationships, and advocacy for victims of violence. We will be discussing these topics and more. But first, a story from one of our male listeners. When I was about 9 or 10, I was told by my male friends at the time about masturbation and how amazing it felt. So I decided to literally take batters into my own hands. And to be honest, I wasn't impressed. Friends called it explosive and I just wasn't having it. A few months later, I was sitting in my dad's old pickup truck and we were listening to talk radio when the conversation turned to masturbation. The hosts asked each other what kind of lube they used, whether it was lotion or actual lube or even spit. It took my brain a few seconds to register this amazing piece of information. But when it did, the masturbation light bulb in my brain lit up and I audibly said, oh, when I realized lubrication was the magic ingredient that was missing from this sexual recipe. 20 years later, it's not lost on me that my dad probably realized that I was masturbating the same time I learned how to Poor guy. And now, on to the show. I see you crying. Up in four, those tears and drying, baby. I'm headed for that time.
1: Ooh, 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 ooh. I gotta hit the ground. Ooh, ooh, I gotta hit the ground. Gonna hit the ground running.
0: Okay, so I guess, first of all, if you could tell our listener, listeners, listeners uh, <laughs> what it is, just, uh, I guess, just introduce yourself.
1: Absolutely. So my name is Tara Mishra, and I have been a sexual health educator since 1996. Uh, really since my undergraduate days on the East Coast. And really throughout the last 20 plus years, um, I've been able to have a really diverse experience um, professionally within sexual health, which has been just tremendous privilege in my life. I really started out doing HIV prevention, which was really the alarm bell at that time in the mid 90s. And I was doing a lot of workshops on colleges and universities on the East Coast, really talking about how to eroticize safer sex, how to have better communication with your partner so that people are having sort of fulfilling, consensual experiences. So I was doing those kinds of workshops on campus. I participated actually in a sex education improv comedy troupe at UMass Amherst called the Not Ready for Bedtime Players. (laughs) Um, So I was really able, um, as a college student in particular, to have a really interesting diversity of experiences talking about sexual health. I was also able to do some syringe exchange on the East Coast before ultimately moving to New Mexico and continuing to do HIV prevention, including sex worker outreach, continuing to do syringe exchange, uh, support group for women with a history of sex work and addiction and homelessness. And then after um, finishing my undergraduate work, I started focusing specifically on violence on college campuses. So my work has really sort of gone all over the place. I also, uh, when I was an undergraduate in New Mexico, worked for an abortion provider as a patient advocate for a number of years. So I've really been able to respond to, you know, infectious disease, responding to needs around reproductive health care, and then most recently responding to violence on campus, trying to both prevent and respond to violence. So I'm really proud that over the last couple of decades, I've had a pretty extensive career in all these different facets of sexual health.
0: Yeah. Holy, and, holy yeah. crap. You're like a goddess. Oh, my gosh. You're like every like you're talking and I'm sitting in here. I'm like, yes, yeah, snaps. Like, it's ridiculous. But I'm like snapping to myself. I'm like, yes, well, that's amazing. That's ugh. You're an incredible human,
1: father, like, and I've
0: I've just met you. Me. My
1: father still wishes that I had become an anesthesiologist instead, but what? The, know, I feel really proud of well, <laughs> the experiences be. that I've had. Very fortunate for sure.
0: That's amazing. Oh my gosh! I just Thank like you. I need a sec. Holy oh
1: okay. <laughs> you're
0: amazing. You're a goddess, oh and you're focusing on right now. <laughs> you're focusing on the violence on campus, which I think is a really I think amazing. I mean because it is kind of prevalent right now. So, what do you feel is the biggest contributing factor to sexual assault and violence on campuses? Is it is it rape culture? Is it a lack of sexual education? Is it too much alcohol and drug use? What do you what do you think that is?
1: You know, Jesse, I would struggle to really identify one thing because there are so many different factors that make college campuses a particularly vulnerable environment for students. So, you know, you have a lot of students who are really left unattended for the first time. Mm -hmm. You have students who have really different levels of experience, People who have different role models that they are relying on for this kind of information. Uh, They have certainly different levels of, like I said, experience and education. The presence of alcohol and drugs is really intense. I think the pressure to be hooking up or, you know, in having sexual relationships is really intense. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a perfect storm for all of these things. As a health educator, I do definitely look to inadequate preparation in terms of access to education as being a really huge issue. Unfortunately, a lot of these students are only learning about consent, you know, maybe when they hit orientation Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of their of their first year of school. And, you know, they might have been spending all of their high school career having sex when they were drunk, and all of a sudden, someone like me is on a stage saying people who are drunk cannot consent, and it really flies in the face of their experience. Yeah. Um, and it can really threaten the credibility of the educator who is speaking to them. hmm So, you know, it can be, it's just really a number of, of challenges. Um, historically, I tend to, just from a theoretical perspective, look at these issues from what's called the ecological model. So recognizing that there are individual factors, there are factors within relationships, um, within the immediate community. So in this case, like a college campus, and then also large, larger societal challenges that can really come into play in terms of what sort of risk factors or protective factors exist for a particular individual. So it's it's really complex. I wish I could say like, oh, it's because they're drinking, or oh, it's because they're watching violent pornography. Oh, yeah. um, but the truth is, there can be uh, so many things that contribute. One factor that definitely, I think, is not addressed enough is that Previous exposure to violence, like, for example, violence in childhood, whether we're talking about sexual abuse or emotional or physical abuse, exposure to domestic violence in the household as a child, um, these are really, really significant factors that can impact vulnerability in terms of committing violence against another person and also um, victimization.
0: Do you feel that the current administration is kind of rolling back the clock a little bit on some of the progress that we've made so far? I do think so.
1: Yeah. Um, Betsy DeVos actually withdrew um, the Dear Colleague letter, which is really what changed the tone of violence prevention on mm-hmm. college campuses back in 2011. Um, she rescinded uh, the, those recommendations in September of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, I had left. But I think there was a lot of concern that yeah. these um, policies and procedures were were going to be rolled back, and they were saying that it was because there wasn't enough due process offered to people who were accused of sexual violence. And you know, I'm certainly alarmed to to see those changes go. Yeah, um, I do myself have kind of an interesting personal arc with Title IX um, that I'm also happy to okay to share. Back in. Uh, February of 1999, um, I was sexually assaulted while I was a student um, on the East Coast at the University of Massachusetts. Oh, my God. And um, <clears throat> I was offended against by a very dear friend that I had known for about five years. Um, he offended against me while I was sleeping, and it was extraordinarily distressing for me mm-hmm. as sexual assault is um, oh, absolutely. for really anyone. And uh, unfortunately, though, at that time, There weren't any confidential resources that I was aware of on campus, and I had to advocate for myself, and I had to go to individual professors and explain what was going on. Um, I had to go to individual professors and request extensions on assignments one of my most vivid memories of going through that whole process was trying to talk to my female psychology professor at the time who told me that in order to get, you know, an extension through the weekend on a very minor assignment that I had to produce proof uh, from the district attorney that what I said had even happened.
0: Oh my God. That's horrible.
1: Horrific. Absolutely. it It felt like a betrayal, you know, coming from, Another woman, certainly coming from someone who had experience in psychology. Um, But because I did actually call the police on my friend, Mm -hmm. I was able to get her her fucking letter, pardon my language. Do it, Um, yeah. I I remember thinking, though, at the time, you know, if I hadn't gone to the police, which most people do not, Mm -hmm. if that would have made me some kind of a liar. Right. I wound up ultimately you know, advocating for myself, trying to um, get incompletes in all the classes that I was taking. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you know, I had to deal with those incompletes the following semester while also taking on my current coursework and uh, working numerous jobs on campus. Unfortunately, at the time, I did not have support uh, from my family. They blamed me for what had happened, Mm -hmm. and I didn't have a lot of compassion from them in terms of getting time off from school, which is really what I had asked for, to just take a semester off so I could gather myself and maybe seek um, support from a therapist. But I was really forced to just continue to show up to class over and over again, to show up to the room where it happened, you know, that first semester. So it was a very, very painful time. And ultimately, I was kicked out of UMass uh, because my grades had suffered so much. I went from a dean's list student to being academically suspended in about three semesters. And when I sort of looked back on that experience, I was really motivated that I didn't want other students to have to go through those experiences that I had. I didn't want them to feel like they were alone, that they didn't have support, that someone wasn't available to listen to them because I had firsthand experience of what that would feel like. Ultimately, I wound up leaving Massachusetts, moving to New Mexico, and slowly starting my education again, I was able to complete my undergraduate um, at the University of New Mexico and then go on to get a master's degree in community health education, which is really what prepared me to then do this work in higher ed at different institutions across the country. And once I really got to know more about Title IX and the kind of protections that it offered, I was actually able to reach out to the University of Massachusetts, and because of what had happened to me and because of the documentation that has existed um, by going through campus police, uh, they were able to actually purge all my failing grades from my transcript, which, you know, feels kind of just like a gesture, but it was really important to me, really acknowledging that they would have handled that situation very differently um, if it had happened, you know, 15 years later than when it happened in 1999, because the direction from the Department of Education really didn't exist at that time. But it really meant a lot to me for those grades to be changed. And it made me feel also like a more viable candidate if I ever wanted to go back to school and get a, a further advanced degree um, in the future. But just that is something that Title IX afforded me um, even well after the fact. Well.
0: I mean, first of all, well, thank you for sharing your story with us, and I I know it's sometimes hard to talk about, but I think it's it's good that we are talking about it. We are bringing those uncomfortable things back up because it needs to be talked about. And I, so, thank you, first of all, for sharing your story. And um, yeah, sure, do you feel like that is still kind of happening, or at least happened up until that Title IX went through?
1: Um, I think that the the change in Title IX. Um, in 2011 definitely was a huge sea change um, and some of the things that that those changes enumerated for institutions would be you know requiring that a standard of evidence be the preponderance of evidence as opposed to like a criminal standard of guilty or innocent beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. um, they also through this dear colleague letter set a 60 day, Time limit, because there was a lot of concern about timeliness of investigations and adjudication of these kinds of cases. It talked about, you know, being able to bring relevant witnesses to participate in hearings or investigations. There was a, a time that if these kinds of assaults happened off campus, it wasn't necessarily considered the jurisdiction of the institution. Uh, mm. So that was something that changed under the dear colleague letter and these sort of new interpretations of Title IX, which up to that point really just talked about um, freedom from discrimination regarding sex in institutions that receive federal money. So for that definition to be expanded to include freedom from sexual harassment or sexual violence was really significant, and I think it contributed to you know, massive hiring of more Title IX coordinators, of more advocates and educators that were really dedicated to responding to these issues. Yeah. So I've actually, I only ever worked on colleges and universities after the dear colleague letter. So I don't have a firsthand account of being a staff member doing that kind of work prior to it. And there were a few institutions that were already engaged before that mandate existed, just recognizing that this was a problem. Really, in the 90s is the first time we started talking about violence on campus. I remember being an adolescent and looking at this cover of Time magazine, and there was this black and white, very stark photo of a young woman and the little blurb on the cover talked about how, you know, she went on a date with this guy and they, you know, went back to I can't recall now if it was his house or her house, but then what happened after that is source of all this controversy on campus and date rape and, you know, really talking about it, the alarm of that time. So this isn't really the first time that we've talked about it, but I think that for there to be such a shift And policies after the Dear Colleague letter during the Obama administration, that was really the most significant change that I had seen. Even with some of these more high-profile cases that have come out since, it was really the Dear Colleague letter that changed the entire landscape of how we talk about these challenges in terms of preventing and responding to violence.
0: So you mentioned the new administration rolled back Mm -hmm. some protections that were put in place during the Obama era. And one of the things that you cited specifically was the rights of the accused. So Mm -hmm. which in like I'm a, a raging feminist. So it just kind of. My first initial reaction is to like vomit and gag, which is probably not good. But what do you what do you think about that, about the the claim of false rape? Like how what do you think about that? Is that something that do you think that happens? Do you think that's a common mm-hmm. thing? Do you think it's something that's just um,
1: I mean, the FBI statistics on on rape allegations suggest that the rates of false allegations are actually lower than the rates of allegations of any other kind of crime. So like you're more likely to have someone lie about being carjacked or being robbed than someone lying about a rape accusation. What is far more urgent, I think, is the number of people who are suffering in silence who say nothing to anybody. I think that is where the alarm needs to be, not the idea of, you know, these phantom women who are constantly accusing people left and right. There are more, so many more people who are feeling the, so much shame and stigma who have to carry this burden um, without any kind of support, who don't say anything to anyone um, for years. And that is really the, the burden that I think requires our attention and really making sure that we do everything we can to support survivors and support people coming forward. And certainly, you know, the experiences of survivors can vary really greatly, but there definitely are populations and communities that experience an even greater burden in terms of stigma that they have to navigate. So, you know, that can exist in communities of color that can exist in um, queer and trans communities. Certainly the uh, experience of men, uh, yes. talking about sexual violence, there are a number of barriers that people have to navigate in order to come forward. And again, so many of them choose for a variety of reasons, just to carry it in silence. Um, and it it breaks my heart. I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of students throughout my career. And um, that is really the most painful aspect of doing that kind of work, is hearing about folks um, who just have these really painful experiences, and they just keep it to themselves, they feel totally isolated. And when you have that kind of trauma that is unresolved, um, it can manifest in so many uh, painful and difficult ways in other aspects of one's life, you know, even years later, mm-hmm. um, in terms of things like addiction or self-injury, eating disorders, um, there can just be so many other ways that it manifests later in life.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. You were totally (laughs) speaking my language. I'm just like, yes, just over here snapping to myself. I love it. So you mentioned um, that there was that article that, you know, with the blurb, and it said that she had gone on a date. So what I read Mm -hmm. a lot about with the, like, Aziz Ansari situation, I read a lot of comments and people... Saying things like "Oh, it was just a bad date," so where is that line then? Do you think because you know is it bad date or is it is it a rape? Is it assault? Is it harassment? What do you What do you think that is? Is that just, a, or is that just a shitty way to acknowledge assault? Is by calling it a bad date?
1: You know, Jesse, one of the <laughs> one of the other challenges of of being an advocate is it's really important to allow people to label their own experience. Mm-hmm. So if someone were to come to me and say, you know, I had an experience over the weekend that just I feel really uncomfortable because they're like, oh, I just had, you know, a really bad date with a guy mm-hmm. um, or a girl or a, anybody, because, of course, anybody can be um, on either side of oh, the yeah. issue. Um, that it's really important to use the language that they are saying. So if someone said to me, you know, I had an experience that made me feel kind of uncomfortable or made me feel violated, um, I would never say sexual assault or rape unless they said sexual assault or rape. Okay. Because the truth is is that, you know, from you know the night that it happened, you know, or five years later, we might look at the same experience in a different lens for a variety of reasons. Um, some folks might want to label something a bad date and then years later be like, no, that was actually sexual assault, but at the time I couldn't comprehend it or I wasn't ready to accept it. Um, some people, you know, might always just say like, oh, well, that was just a bad date. But I think that, you know, it's really important to listen to the language that that person is using. Yeah, no, I totally the, agree. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. That's In terms good. of yeah. the Aziz I'm sorry situation specifically, I feel based on her account, she describes a number of indications that she did not want to be sexual with him. Mm -hmm. And I sort of have some examples of when she said, you know, whoa, slow down. That is a no. Absolutely. Um, Moving his hand away is no, I don't want to do that. Pulling away, saying, you know, hey, not now, like, you know, maybe on our second date. You know, that is no. And on college campuses, I would constantly be teaching the affirmative consent standard. Yes. So not having it be a no means no standard, but that a yes means yes standard. And the only way that you can hear yes is if someone says yes. And, you know, not participating is no. Right. And, you know, withdrawing is no. And I know that there's been a lot of conversation and criticism of the young woman involved saying, you know, well, she should have just left, right, um, you know, or she should have slapped him in the face or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we forget that when you are feeling threatened, you can fight, flee, mm-hmm. or you can freeze. And as an advocate, when I was reading her account, it sounds like very much she kind of froze. You know, she kept articulating, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And, you know, at times she even said, I don't want to feel forced. Right. I don't want to hate you. And yet, based on her account, things would maybe slow down or stop or they'd go and sit somewhere else. But it just was a matter of a few minutes before it would just start up again. Right. And really, the way that affirmative consent was taught on the campuses that I worked at, it was really this idea that consent needs to be an ongoing conversation, And I would hope that someone like Aziz Ansari, who has written extensively and spoken extensively about intimacy and dating relationships, would be aware of that affirmative consent standard. And I just feel like the right thing to have said in that situation would be like, okay, like, you know, what do you feel comfortable doing? Or what, you know, is completely off the table? Just as like a basic conversation. But how many times does someone have to say you know, I'm not into this, or like, I don't want to touch your dick. You have to be putting your hands on someone's genitals in order for them to do what you want. Unfortunately, that is not respecting someone's desires. And so I feel based on what she wrote, this was not a consensual exchange. And, you know, he said in his statement that he believed that everything was consensual, but it was not, if, and I wish that he had taken more time to really speak with her about, you know, what she did feel comfortable doing, or if she wasn't responding to him in the way that he wanted her to. I wish that he had the skills to really stop and and ask. And people have talked about, you know, the different power dynamics that he was celebrity and she wasn't, and she he was so much older, and it was his home and and this and that, but it it did really sound to me based on her account that she had really kind of froze and maybe withdrew a bit in this situation. And then finally she was able to get out, but it wasn't until after she had had a really horrific experience with him. Right.
0: Right. And, and so, and I think that's kind of the thing here is I don't think that consent is, it seems like it should be common sense, but I, I, it's, it's not really. So, and that's the thing so when we're talking about consent and and things like that you you mentioned a little bit earlier something about eroticizing safe sex and consent mm-hmm. and being something about just it it it's like sexy getting consent or something it's people who that's like the core of mm-hmm. their sexuality is getting that consent and so Do you think that that's something that in, you know, high schools and middle schools, when we're talking about sex education, where do you think that talk about consent needs to start?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I would ideally I would love for there to be age appropriate conversations about consent and physical autonomy from a very, very young age. So we talk all the time about children who are kind of forced to, you know, hug or kiss relatives if they don't feel comfortable. And I really wish that that kind of training would really stop. Particularly, you know, I know that there have been times in my own life as a woman feeling like I had to contain someone else's bad behavior, even if I was uncomfortable. But that just culturally, I feel like I had been kind of trained To, you know, no matter how badly someone was behaving, I couldn't be as assertive as maybe I would have wanted to be. Um, Maybe because this person was an elder or something like that. So, I really think that it's important for children to learn early on that, again, nobody is entitled to their body. That it's their bodies are not shameful that sexuality is not shameful, but that it's something to be treated with respect and to really encourage developmentally appropriate conversations, you know, about the body and, you know, about treating the body with respect and treating others with respect. So certainly not you know, putting your hands on someone else if they don't want to be touched, if they don't want to be hugged, if they don't want to be tickled or chased or, or whatever, things like that. And I think just normalizing that um, and really teaching respect at a young
0: age, I think is really important. I love that. I, Actually, that's something that I I do with my daughter. You know, if she doesn't want hugs, I don't give her hugs. If she doesn't want kisses, Mm -hmm. I don't give her kisses, which is hard as a mom sometimes because you just want to eat them up all the time. But I definitely get some like crazy looks from people when, you know, we're saying goodbye or whatever. And I'm talking to like her grandma or, you know, an uncle or an aunt or whoever and say, OK, bye. And people always want to give hugs. And so I get crazy looks sometimes because I'm like, no, you don't have to give hugs if you don't want to give hugs. So yeah. I love that there are people out there that also do that because it makes me feel validated as a person and as a parent. So thanks for that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think also, you know, helping children come up with alternatives to that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, hey, I love you, but I don't want to hug you. Like, can we give each other a high five? <laughs> something like that. Just something else that acknowledges, you know, hey, I love you and I'm, I see you, but I just, for whatever reason, don't feel comfortable getting all up in your physical space. One, one of my best friends really hates being hugged and it kills me because I want to, I'm a very affectionate and huggy kind of person, but she really taught me that it's critical to ask, you know, is it okay if I hug you? Um, Or if someone has already communicated, like, I'm not really into being touched, again, respect their physical autonomy. One example, Jesse, that I will suggest that I think does a really outstanding job of doing that age-appropriate sex education is actually a program that has existed for decades in the Unitarian Church, which is called, now it's called OWL is the acronym, and it stands for Our Whole Lives. And it really talks about sexuality early, early in life in terms of part of their religious education program. And it really just talks about things in very healthy, affirming, respectful terms from, I believe, uh, elementary school all the way up into high school. And I believe also some sexuality education even for adults. So I really have found that that is an outstanding Program that has again existed in the religious education curriculum of the Unitarian Church for a very long time. A lot of my peers went through it when it was called About Your Sexuality. And again, it was just a very healthy and I don't know if I could go as far as calling it sex positive, but certainly at least teaching that sexuality is normal, about how to engage in a respectful way, how to show respect to yourself, to your partner, being able to identify your own boundaries, your goals. I mean, it's definitely sexual health is so much more than just, you know, are you practicing safe sex? Are you avoiding diseases? Are you avoiding unwanted pregnancy? That is not what sexual health is. And in fact, my career has very much been guided by the definition of sexual health that is illustrated by the World Health Organization. And I'll sort of paraphrase it a little bit, but it's really about a sense of well-being in relation to sexuality that would require a positive and respectful approach to sex and relationships, including the possibility of pleasure and having safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. And I really feel like that is something that should be accessible to all people. I feel like it is a human right to be able to have, in particular, the freedom from coercion, discrimination, and violence you know i feel like even the consent conversation i feel like talking about consent so that we can avoid violence is is just one aspect of it but i really want to get to a point where we talk about consent in terms of talking about pleasure and talking about satisfying intimacy, because we know that even consensual sex can be extremely unfulfilling and can be difficult, even if it is consensual. So I think that really having healthy sexuality goes beyond things like preventing violence or preventing any of the you know, negative public health outcomes that folks might enumerate, you know, again, like, you know, infection or or unwanted pregnancy, but really talking about quality of experiences, not just preventing violence.
0: I love that. That's, that's great. So really quick, I know that mm-hmm. we are kind of focusing on, you know, the climate on campus and things like that. But you mentioned something about consensual sex can even still be sometimes not satisfying. So I've, I heard a term the other day, and I'd like to get your quick opinion on it, about the orgasm gap. Do you think it exists? Is well, it a real thing? Oh,
1: it absolutely does. It absolutely does. 100%. Um, and, you know, part of the education that I've done with students, particularly cisgender female students, is this idea of not necessarily thinking that your sexuality belongs to somebody else um, or that sexuality is something that happens with somebody else. I really think that being able to celebrate your own sexuality and really being able to get to know what it is that you like, really being able to discover that on your own can be such a powerful journey. And then if you do choose to share that sexuality with someone else, that you can come to it from a place of confidence and you can also, you know, help them provide an experience that is satisfying to you. And again, there are so many barriers that people experience to being as really in terms of being considered sex positive. Like there might be folks who have history of violence and they don't necessarily feel that sex positivity is available to them. You know, or again, they might exist in another community that's been marginalized and the sexuality that they have has been criticized or pathologized. So, you know, there can be some real barriers to fully being able to embrace your sexuality, even if that is choosing to not participate. So if you identify as asexual or if you choose to be celibate, that needs to be honored and respected, too. I'm really all about helping work with people based on where they're at and just trying to help them achieve the goals that they set for themselves. But I think that, you know, particularly for survivors, being able to reconnect with your own sexuality and being able to celebrate that and create that safety within yourself is profoundly important Just as an individual like forget about involving anybody else but again your sexuality belongs to you your body belongs to you and to really work to combat shame around that
0: I think that's great like you were yes you were just totally speaking my language right now and I'm loving it
1: oh so one last quick
0: question before we we wrap up. So what can, you know, we talk about all these things on like a global on a societal scale like what can this podcast do to help? What can we do and how can we teach without being like condescending or how can we reach the most amount of people and teach them to be better?
1: I mean, I think again there are so many areas that we can get better. I think that encouraging people to listen Is really really critical to just be able to hear somebody's experience and take it in as their experience. People you know sometimes will complain about feeling like this is you know they're being condescended to but again people come from such different backgrounds in terms of their history with sexuality, their experiences, their level of education in these issues and it can be really hard to cater to everyone. So folks might be thinking like, oh, this is really basic. How could you think I not know that? But the truth is, is that, you know, we are talking about a giant audience. So I would encourage folks to always be open to really listening and to also participate in the conversation. Like nobody is too good to participate in these conversations. You know, you might have written books about modern romance, but you still need to be part of that conversation and realize that we all have skills That we can build to make us better at, you know, again, communicating consent, hearing consent, identifying our desires, identifying and communicating our boundaries. There's work for all of us to be done. Nobody is above this conversation, and we can all really benefit from it. And I think that listening to the experiences of different people from different backgrounds, so again, queer folks, you know, communities of color can be impacted differently by sexual violence, you know, the experiences of men, the experiences of survivors of every stripe, sex workers, folks of different abilities, the experiences of childhood sexual abuse survivors. I feel like everyone's voice contributes something. We can learn so much from the experiences of others if we are just willing to get out of our own heads and just show up authentically for someone else with compassion. And I think that people really talking about their experiences and, and just being open to learning is a huge aspect. In the time that I was doing the violence prevention and response in college, I actually had students come to me and say, I am really rethinking some of the decisions that I made when I was in high school before I knew about all this. And I wonder if what I did was wrong. I wonder if I made mistakes, if I could have made better decisions. Again, I think just being able to reflect on that and being open to learning new things and doing things differently is really the best way to move forward to be able to reflect and learn and, and try something different.
0: Well, I think that you just like made a perfect commercial for this podcast because it's exactly what (laughs) we're trying to do here, (laughs) you know, and and so thank you for that. I I could sit here and I could literally talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we have to wrap up. So thank you so much, Tara, for taking the time to sit and chat with us for a little while. I so appreciate it. And um,
1: it was a pleasure, Jesse. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. And I would love to talked with you again at some point because i could just sit here and chat with you for ever honestly you're just totally speaking thrilled. my language so
1: well, hopefully next time i'll be able to join you in studio so oh my maybe gosh try the summertime that
0: would be amazing yes <laughs> awesome we'll arrange it it'll be good it'll be good all right well thank Fantastic. you so much tara and you have a great rest of your day or your night i don't know what time it is i have no idea
1: <laughs> likewise thank you so much Jess.
0: thank you That's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Tara Mishra for swinging on by today. The conversation was absolutely fantastic, and I can't wait to have you back on the show. Thank you to KRFC for having us on the KRFC Podcasting Network. Thanks to Ryan Pruitt for our theme song, and thank you for listening to the show. See you all next time, and as always, proper communication and consent, folks.